all the best wisdom of man is but the wisdom of men. All the best that is the wisdom of man is but wisdom of men. We think of the wisdom of man and what should we do in life, how do we move forward. There's usually at least two key components to that. On one part, it's one part pragmatism. We do things and we discover what works. Pragmatic, it works. On another side, we look at experience as we age in life and we see how things are done, that others have done, the experiences that they've written about, that they know personally, they found them, and experiences and pragmatism can get us a long way in life. What we see this morning in our text that one of our elders, Jerry, read for us is Jesus comes face to face with Jewish leaders, this We see the Jews at shorthand as we discuss for the Jewish leadership. Here, I believe, talking about the the Sanhedrin, this group of 71 Sadducees and Pharisees that that make up this judicial kind of branch and legislative branch of the Jewish temple and leadership. And what we see take place is that the Jewish leaders have been impacted by pragmatism, it works-isms, and their experience. So much so that they have begun to compromise, they've begun to edit the Word of God. And in doing so, Jesus comes to the temple. This temple, the special place in which God, who is holy and just and righteous, that God would come and and provide a way for man to have relationship with Him. Located at the temple would be the sacrifices. This was the center of where the Lord was, His presence made known. And what they would do is they would take the plans and the design that God had given, and they would, re, they would edit it, they would change it, they would change the word and way of God. And as Jesus comes into the temple, he confronts them. And as we walk through this text, we're going to understand two truths and a definition. Two truths and a definition. What you must ask yourself as a reader of this text is, do I really believe that Jesus has the authority to do and to say what he does. And if he does, that means for my life that he and the Word of God are to be a higher authority, an ultimate authority, above even pragmatism and experience. So let's begin, as we note first and foremost, that pragmatism, it works-ism, must not replace God's Word in our lives. Pragmatism must not replace God's Word in our lives. Now, the Jewish people are keeping what the Word of God says to do. Now, we're not going to read it and summarize it in full, but you can write down Exodus chapter 12. You can read about the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. And the Jews were commanded to to maintain, to keep the Passover, the celebrating of God leading free the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And it was the Lord providing in which his death angel would be sent and it would come and would take the firstborn of all the homes that were not covered in the pure blood of this lamb or the lambs. And they were let out. And they were called to continue to maintain this, to celebrate once a year, to gather back together and to remember the celebration of the Passover, this wonderful feast. And in so doing, they would do so on a yearly basis. One thing we need to catch at the very beginning of this, as we think about the Passover, this is the first of three Passover scenes we'll see in the Gospel of John. 
This is first. We'll see our second in John chapter 6, and then we'll see it again in John chapter 11. And as we get to those, it's important that this scene is in our mind. The Passover is a big deal. Josephus, a Jewish historian, writes, and he says that there was upwards of 2.7 million people, 2.7 million Jews that would gather in from dozens of miles or, or maybe even hundreds of miles from Rome to gather in for the Passover. 2.7 million. How many sacrifices? He wrote there's about 200,000 plus sacrifices that would be made at the temple. This was a big, massive deal. Now, it's possible that he counted numbers like a pastor counts worship attendance, right? A little inflated. Or a fisherman counts a fish, gets bigger right over time. Regardless, we get the idea this was a big deal. A lot of people there. So as we read this interaction, we want to understand it's not like it was a small room with a couple tables set up. This would end the temple and the outer courts, probably the Gentile courts. And we want to understand this about the temple. And the Gentile courts, the outer courts, this would have been the place that there's Jews and there's Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, you are a Gentile. And they would gather there, and it was a gift that God gave for the Gentiles that desired to draw near to the Lord, to draw near to a relationship with the Lord, that they could come and they were to pray. Jews and Gentiles could enter that space, but it was the only space that Gentiles could come and pray and seek the Lord. That's the place that gets pragmatically repurposed. Now, the synoptics, the synoptics means that we got the Gospel of John and then what's often called the synoptics. It sounds like the word synonymous or similar. So the synoptic Gospels are three more similar-sounding Gospels. They have similar stories in them. They're called the synoptics. You can impress your friend with that. The synoptics. In the synoptics, this encounter, the flipping of tables, takes place at the end of the, the scene, the end of the story, before his crucifixion. But I think it's probably like there's two, and many think this, there's probably two of these temple scenes in which Jesus goes to purify, and he's zealous for his father's house. And so this being the first of them, keep this scene in mind in the coming weeks. Keep this scene in stitched into our mind. For what takes place when the selling of different animals is not a bad thing? Matter of fact, we know that it was sold, if you want to look at the picture up here, at the Mount of Olives. Traditionally, it was set up as an act of hospitality and kindness by the Jewish leaders to allow the selling of sacrifices, depending on income, by what you could afford to give as a sacrifice, over here on the Mount of Olives, which is not far from the temple. I mean, imagine traveling for like 100 miles with your family and, and having to carry birds. You know, honey, did you pack the birds? And you're having to walk that whole way. So this is an act of hospitality, not very far from the temple. They could have bought them and moved in. Google Earth is a really cool thing. But what happened over time, pragmatically, is they moved from the Mount of Olives into the temple. The Jewish leaders, though incredibly wise and respected men, learned in the way of the Lord, they chose to edit what they had no authority to edit. You see, it made a lot of sense. They turned the temple into a, 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 a one-stop shop for three different things. They would come and make the sacrifices. Now, even though you came and you bought the sacrifice, you were still responsible to make sure it was a quality sacrifice. You couldn't be going and buying no dirt cheap sacrifice with three legs and five eyes. That was not the case. I just deeply offended a lot of you, and I apologize. It's a great place. Wonderful, very well organized over there. Okay, all right. 
move on. You were still responsible for the sacrifice that was brought. And so what they did is they provided in a three-in-one stop. They turned the Gentile courts, which were very large, they repurposed them into a place in which livestock could be purchased for sacrifice. That's number one. Number two, you had people traveling in, Jews traveling in from all over the place with different currencies. So it was a place in which currency could be exchanged, which would be a very helpful thing, very kind thing to do. Third, though, what was the case in which the temple tax would be paid? They had to pay a certain amount. Every male, Jewish male, 20 and older, had to pay this temple tax. So it was a three-in-one stop. So what's the problem that Jesus has with this? The problem is that the Jewish leaders redefined out of pragmatism something they had no right to change. They had no right to change the gift that God had given them. They had no right to change the design of the temple and the structure and the sense of its function. But they did so out of pragmatic it-worksisms. And Jesus come and he rebukes them that they ought not to do such a thing. How does he deal with this pragmatism? He takes from, I mean, just imagine, he takes this gift that God had given for, Jews, for Gentiles to come and to interact, this space. The Gentiles could go nowhere else in the temple. There's signs that we know that existed where they would have put up for the Gentiles reading them, if you go past this spot, you're responsible for your own death. The Gentiles were to be killed if they entered into other parts of the temple. They couldn't just move around. So this part of the temple where they were to come and to pray, imagine how loud it would have been with hundreds of money changers. All the, who knows how many livestock that would be in there and all the noise and the smells that would come with that. And Jesus is upset with this. He's enraged at this and he calls into repentance. And what does he do? He takes a piece of leather, what probably would have been used to shoo the animals around, and he ties it together and he makes a whip and he flips the tables uh, a number of tables. We don't know how many, but he flips enough to get the attention to stop the process of what's taking place, to gain the attention of the, the Jewish leadership in the temple courts. Jesus is God in flesh. You remember last week when Jesus responded to Mary when she came to him with the water to turn to wine, the, the problem at the feast that they had run out of wine? You remember what he told her? My hour has not yet come. And the hour that he had in mind, as we discussed later on in John, is the hour of his crucifixion. The hour had not yet come. Jesus, the eternal Son in flesh, fully God, fully man. You know what will happen in a couple years when he returns for Passover and is crucified? I wonder if, as he took this and he took these threads of leather and made a whip, surely he would have known as he called the Jewish leadership to repentance, their hearts hardened against him even more. It's a similar Greek word, phengelion, which is this, this whip that was made. They would take it and they would actively do it in the verb form. They would give him a flogging, a phengelio, a flogging, in which it wasn't simply pieces of leather, but with metal on the end so it could hit the skin and rip out the meat. I wonder if Jesus, as he righteously zealous for his father's house fulfilling the scriptures knew that in a couple years the religious leaders would take one to him isn't that love that's jesus he corrects them and he fulfills the scriptures 
He calls them. He's zealous for his father's house. That's what they remember fulfilling his scriptures. Jesus has all authority to do this, listen, or he has no authority to do this. The scene that we're seeing played out right now, Jesus has all authority to do this, to correct the highest of courts of Jewish leadership, of the Hebrew Scriptures, of the gift of God, of Yahweh in relationship with man. Jesus can either do this or he is out of line and cannot do this. You as the reader must decide. Is Jesus authoritative of all the pragmatic, it works ways in my life? The way that's easiest that I've just figured out how to do this? Is he authoritative to do this? And if he is authoritative to do what he does in this temple scene, he's authoritative to rule over my life when it comes to purity, when it comes to my decisions, when it comes to forgiveness. The pragmatism is doing what is easy, what works. The call that Christ gives us is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow after Jesus. This is the greatest mission of your life, students. To know Jesus, to make him known, to be followers of Jesus, and call others to be followers of Jesus. This is the greatest purpose. This is the greatest gift to know this great love of God in Christ. He's worthy of your life. This is the gift that God gives us. It's not convenient to read Scripture. Right, parents, as you're tired, as you come home at the end of the day, it's not, it's, not, it's not convenient to stop and to read with your family. It's not convenient to pray. Listen, it's never convenient to forgive someone, is it? I've never woken up one day and just said, it's a beautiful day. You know what? This is a perfect day to humble myself and ask forgiveness. It's not convenient to walk the way of the Lord, but the way of the Lord is the way. That's the gift that the Lord gives us, is the way. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us adoption. And when it comes to compromising the Word of God, we must check our lives. We must be in community with other believers that can notice the spots where we're most tempted to want to choose pragmatism over the way and Word of the Lord. So we thank God for that, that He gives us a congregation to do so, to lean in and to walk out the things of the Lord together. So Spirit of God, give us sensitive eyes and hearts to be aware of the pragmatic dangers that sneak in among us and in us and a desire to compromise the word of God to edit the things we have no authority to edit just as the Jewish leadership had no authority to edit the temple layout pragmatism must not replace God's word in our lives secondly experience experience that I already know this I already did this Experience, tradition, must not replace God's Word in our lives. Look at verse 18, verse 18 through 22 as a reminder again. He says, so the, Jew, so the Jews, that's that Jewish leadership, thanks Sanhedrin. The, they said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? They see what he does. He does enough to get the attention of the leadership. And the leadership tells him, what are you going to do for us to prove that you have the authority to stop what we're doing in here? Who do you think you are? That's what they tell him. Who do you think you are? They question his very authority. What are you thinking? Who do you think you are to do such a thing as this? And you know what I would be thinking? Imagine that you're Peter. Imagine you're Peter. You were a fisherman in life beforehand. Some of the men here are like, that's my dream job. And women. Some great fisher women here. Peter was a fisherman not long ago. And now he's following after Jesus. Just recently, he just saw 
Jesus turned water to wine. And now here he is, and he's at the Passover with millions of other Jewish people gathering together to obey the Scriptures. And what happens? He has the full attention of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they tell him to do what you know Jesus can do. What sign do you give us to do such a thing as this? In my mind, if I was Peter, I would be thinking, let me get you some water, Jesus. This is going to be awesome. They're about to blow their mind. They're going to see you're the Messiah. This is awesome. This is perfect. Oh, your plan has totally come together. This is perfect. We know you can do miracle at miraculous signs that show you're the Messiah. They've asked you for one. We've got two million plus people here to lead the revolt. It's the perfect timing to overthrow the Romans. This is great. And then they'll see you're the Messiah. You'll rule from the throne of David forever. The Romans will be cast out. Oh, this is so great. And what does Jesus do? Does he do a miracle? No, he does not. In 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. See, Jesus didn't do a miracle for them, but he told them, you will be a part of the greatest miracle that the world will ever know. They're going to be a part of the greatest miracle that the world will ever know because they will destroy his body, the temple. And he will raise it up again in three days. That's a greater miracle than raising Lazarus from the dead. He will be raised from the dead. He will raise himself from the dead. He points to the greatest of all miracles. Do you believe in that miracle? Do you believe in the sinless life of Jesus, the make right death on the cross, the glorious resurrection? Do you know him? The disciples put the scene together later on, but what takes place here is that the Jewish leadership is so blinded by their experience, and rightfully so. They're blind. But think about it. Think about the craziness of the statement on its surface. It took for Solomon's temple. You have the tabernacle before the first temple, Solomon's temple. So we have the tabernacle over here in which God would come and tabernacle among his people. He would be among his people. Spirit of fire, cloud. They could have a relationship with him. All the artistic abilities to create this tent took way longer than three days and three nights. And then you go and you get a location in King Solomon with all the wealth imaginable in the world. Wealthiest man alive, the wisest man alive. And all the resources of Israel, it took him 20 years to build Solomon's temple to the Lord. 20 years. Now, in 586, the temple gets destroyed and the second temple is built after the Jews are able to come back into the land from captivity. Persians allow them to get free a certain number, and they begin to rebuild the second temple. This is called the second temple period. They rebuild the second temple, but they have adversity the whole time. It takes them, they take a break for 16 years, Ezra said. 16 years they stop building the temple. They put the foundation stones down, but it's a much smaller temple than Solomon's temple, okay? It's much smaller. It's so small, actually, that in Ezra chapter 4, we're told, 
that the men that were alive, the priests that were alive, the Levites that were alive, and the heads of the household that were alive, and they saw the Solomon's temple, they saw how large it was, they look at the second temple that's built, and it says they weep and cry out to God. That took years and years. And now we have King Herod's temple, which is larger than Solomon's temple grandiose. And in their experience, the Pharisees and Sadducees, these Jewish leaders say, it's taken 46 years to build this. They're standing, I mean, they probably did this thing. It took 46 years to build this. And you, Jesus, you're a carpenter? That's great. Three days? You're going to do this? And they mock him. Since I've been in Texas, I've heard this saying a number of times. Have you ever heard this saying? I have boots older than you. You heard that saying? I gotta be honest. When I first heard that, my first thought was like, we need to get you a new new boots. <laughs> right? If you've told me that, I don't mean any offense to you. But I think that's what they're saying when they quote Herod's temples taken 46 years. I think they're looking at Jesus and saying, Son, you're only 30 years old. And you're going to do this in three days? And he would. And he gives this prophecy, and he did. And all who believe in him have life. But see, their experience blinded them. It inflated the pride in their hearts. And it blinded them from the Messiah who was right there in the temple, in his father's house. They were too blind to see the Messiah right in front of them. So here's the question. How do we as believers who age keep from allowing our experiences, our I've already done this, I know how this should go, how do we keep that from blinding us and instead be a blessing to us? Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is attained along the path of a righteous life. Gray hair is a crown of glory. So how do we keep gray hair as a crown of glory? Now, I have about a half-inch patch of gray right here. But I don't think I'm as qualified to speak on this as some of you all are. And so I asked a number of godly men and women that are part of our church family. I asked them this question. I texted them this week, and I said, hey, what would you say to this? How have you been able to keep a love for Jesus and a love for God's Word as you've aged? How have you kept from coasting in your faith? And here's a number of responses anonymously that I got back. Not anonymous to me, but anonymous to you. First one, one godly lady said, The thrill of finding freshness in even the best-known passages. I want everyone to experience that. But it's knowing I'm over my head in ministry that gives me that push to stay, it, stay in it deeply that if God doesn't show up, I'm done that I need him and I need his word to me today. Another godly lady said, I have never gotten to the point where I no longer felt I needed to be in God's word. It is the one constant guide on how to live my life to please him. It is a joy to share with others the things God has taught me through his word and continues to teach me. It never grows old and is always relevant to me. Another godly brother said, my immediate response is that Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
Of course, that passage refers to salvation, but there is so much wrapped up in the way. Second Peter 1, the passage is so as a pathway to a life of adding, I confess, to having to do a lot of relearning, being reminded of these things regularly. One godly couple said, we were born into two families which showed us Christian love and examples and gave us both solid foundations which paid dividends when we encountered some very difficult times in our midlife years. Those biblical principles and lessons carried us into this season of life. Those experiences cause us to want to continue learning and to be able to guide other believers and non-believers who might be struggling through issues we survived. Being involved in groups and classes and one-on-one sessions, community is how we are able to continue growing and serving our Lord in, in, in Grace Bible Church. Another brother said, read John 15, 11 through 17. And that's a text that we're going to preach on on August 23rd. So if you're wondering what that says beforehand, you should read it. John 15, 11 through 17. By the way, one of these applications as we preach through texts and just little bit by bit, one of the ways that you can most benefit in just the way that our church walks through books of the Bible is on your own is find time, carve out time on a, on a fairly regular basis, an hour or two, and reread this gospel. Reread it on your own with a pen in hand. Because as you do so, things that we miss or you forget because we're going at a slower pace, you'll be able to see them and thread them together. It is amazing what the Spirit of God does in both of these ways to weave them together and how He grows us and shapes us. God, would You make all of us this hungry? Would You make all of us? Now, let's be honest. You don't have to be gray-haired to get stuck in your experiences and traditions, do you? Teenagers, wake up. Their heads just shot up like gophers. That's concerning. Now, listen. As teenagers, we can have experiences and and think we know how things work, don't we? Matter of fact, as a younger person, we can make the mistake of thinking we know how it is more definitively than an older person. You're on the cutting edge of technology. You get asked every day you go home by your parents, how does this, how do I turn my computer on again? And you think you're at the cutting edge. Your experience of being on the cutting edge of technology can blind you as a teenager or a college student just as much as age can and gray hair. And so we have to be sensitive and ask the Spirit of God and, and lean into community and ask people to show us where we find ourselves walking by simple pragmatism or experience instead of the way and the word of the Lord. That's the gift that God gives us as a church family. So I told you there'd be two truths and a definition. Here's a definition. What does it mean to trust God's word? Thirdly, verses 23 and 25. What does it mean to trust God's word? To trust God's Word is to believe that He knows and that He knows us better than we do. To trust God's Word is to believe that He knows and He knows us better than we do. He knows you better than you do. He knows me better than I do. This is a decision that we make as we come to God's Word. Now, we don't see everything that God does here. Look at verse 23. So though Jesus didn't do a sign right when they asked him to, he's not a, a pet, he's not going to jump when they say jump. But look what it says in verse 23. You catch this? Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So Jesus did signs this Passover week. 
and many believed. Now, number one, I'm curious to wonder what other signs did he do? John, we already said John, John 21, he didn't tell us everything that he had done. We don't know all the signs Jesus did. But what we have is sufficient. As good Bible students, it's important to remember in God's Word, we don't have exhaustive knowledge. We don't have everything that happened. But what we have in God's Word is sufficient as the final authority of our life. He doesn't tell us the other signs that He did, but what He tells us is sufficient for us. And what's the result of all the signs that are taking place? Verse 23. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And listen, if we stop right here, if John only wrote a two-chapter and 23-verse book, this would be the greatest ending. We think, how great is this? All these people believed? Amazing. But it doesn't stop there. See, they, they see signs. They see signs and they recognize that whoa, this really may be the Messiah. They can't deny what they see. Matter of fact, next week we're going to begin John chapter 3 and the experience of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, the Pharisee. He comes to him at night for a long conversation, one-on-one. And Nicodemus' eyes will lead him to Jesus. But they will not and they are not sufficient to convert his heart and his soul to be born again. The many see Jesus' miracles. Have you ever just said, I would just believe if I just, if boom, God could just do something? And the answer is, no, you wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. The signs take place and they believe, but they do not believe in a way of entrusting themselves to Jesus as the Messiah. They believe in Jesus in the way that they want him to entrust himself to them. They want Jesus to give himself to them. And it says that he knows their hearts. He knows them. And he will not do so, for the hour had not yet come, has it? Verse 24 and 25, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What a reminder this is. We don't get to come to Jesus and use him as a consultant. We don't get to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I could use a hand here. And then when I got my feet under me, I'll call you later. Jesus is Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the authority of all authorities. And the call to us is one in which we say, not Jesus, entrust yourself to me, but Jesus, I entrust myself to you. His love, his way, his mercy, his grace. Life is greater. The call to come to Him is one to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him, to believe in Him, to believe on Jesus, to entrust ourselves to Him. He knows the masses of the crowd do not have that type of belief when they see and begin to put the dots together of who He is. Now, I said earlier you would benefit from reading through the text, just reading it through. And here's one thing that if you do so, you would have caught on your own. Look back to John chapter 1, verse 48 and 49. In John chapter 1, verse 48 and 49, you remember the calling of Nathanael? Nathanael comes to Jesus, and he realizes that Jesus really knows him. 
Jesus really knows him. He never met him. Nathaniel had never met Jesus. And he comes to realize by God's grace who Jesus is. Because he knows that Jesus knows him. And by God's grace and working on Nathaniel's life, look what his confession is upon realizing that Jesus knows him better than he even does. Verse 48 and 49 of John chapter 1, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, teacher, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He confesses him and he submits to him. He surrenders his pride and he follows him. Have you taken time to consider that Jesus knows you? He knows every anxiety, every tossing, every fear, every insecurity, every covetous thought, every sin. He knows you perfectly. And as exposed as that thought is in love, he is the great shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. God so loved that he sent his one and only son, his one of a kind son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The realization that Jesus is who He is, the Messiah, the Son of God in flesh, will lead us to one of two things, as we can't deny that. To be like the crowd that says, entrust yourself to me, Jesus. Or to be like Nathaniel that says, oh, Jesus, you know me and you love me. And I get to follow you. Like Nathaniel. The King of Israel, the Messiah, the Son of God. How good is our God? How good is our God? Is God good? Think about it. Is, is God good? Even when, fill in the blank. Is God worth your life, your time, your surrender? Is He better than our pragmatic tendencies and our experiences would show, our family generations of walking? The answer is yes. Jesus is the way. Lord, help us to believe and to follow after him. Forgive us and lead us, we pray. Next steps. Next steps. Three next steps, rather briefly. Where in my life am I most tempted to compromise God's word in order to live a pragmatic but it works type way? Where in my life am I most tempted? I want to say to God's word, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll look at that later. I think I got this part of my life figured out. Where is that? Number two. Jesus bodily arose from the dead. Scripture refers to Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection. It's a text we usually reference at funerals. It's a blessing of hope to know that our bodies, as they decay and they are mortal, they experience the sting of death. 
that as our bodies decay and ache at, at funerals, we're so encouraged to know, you know what, that, that, that brother or sister, they will see the glorified, resurrected body for Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Just as Jesus received a glorified, resurrected, perfect body, so too will I one day. How does that thought spur you on to love and faithfulness and joy today to know the aches and pains that you experience are but temporary? They are, don't deny it, but in Christ they are but temporary. How does that stir your soul this morning and to praise? And third, how amazing is it that God knows us, even our sin? And in His merciful love, He sent the Son to perfectly pay the price to purchase us for His glory. How amazing is that reality? Take time today to rejoice in His gracious and merciful love. Simple dinner table discussion. How great and merciful is our God? How great is He? Oh, what an assurance that we have in Christ. What an assurance we have because of Christ. He is the one we look to today. He is the one we believe in, correct? He is the one that gives us hope and adoption and forgiveness of sins. It's in Him we have life. It's in Him we believe. That's the good news. He's our assurance. Look to Jesus. So let's stand and let's sing to Jesus, our King.